Captain's personal log. I'm entering the ship's holodeck where images of reality can be created by our computer. Highly useful in crew training. Highly enjoyable when used for games and recreation. Enter when ready. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 28 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we're talking about the various official Star Trek role-playing games. And since I've only ever played one, one out of five, really, I brought on a better man than I to get the full story. Welcome back to the show, Ryan Blake. Hi. Sorry, I've never been described as a better man than anyone before, so I'm I'm blushing at my end of the microphone. Well, I put the I set the bar pretty low. Blushing over. Now, Ryan, you've already proved your Star Trek cred when you came to talk about the the Borg back in episode 19. So we'll just jump right into this month's topic: Star Trek role-playing games. I, I think we'll go game by game and talk about the mechanics and the setting and the product support for each one. But first, a more general question: What do you think makes a good Star Trek role-playing game? You know, then maybe we can compare each against that standard but and for people at home we're talking about you know <laughs> pen and paper uh games we're talking about not role-playing games on a computer or a console of any sort it's tabletop stuff we're deep into the nerd stuff now yeah and god knows there's been enough star trek online games and computer games to warrant a couple of podcasts on their own so that's yeah. another show yeah what makes a good role-playing game that is uniquely star trek just going by my experience in star trek fandom and of role-playing games in general, and latterly Star Trek role-playing games. A Star Trek role-playing game, one of the most crucial elements of it, more so than probably any other role-playing game, is the translation from screen to table. There's a very specific flavour to Star Trek that we all know and love, and that is simply, it's it's Starfleet-oriented for the most part. doesn't have to be, but there are elements on the screen that you would come to a role-playing game specifically for. For example, teamwork, overcoming the odds in a specific philosophical vein, crew balance, which is perhaps a little bit contradictory if you're playing in the TOS era because the TV show had no screen balance at all, or crew balance. The ability to use techno babble in a meaningful way that sort of you get a bit of a kick out of. <laughs> you know, if you can say, talk about the warp drive and the lithium crystals and... I could go on forever about just the techno babble. The ability to explore well, if you're going in the Starfleet direction, and crucially, in a very abstract way, the ship has to be the other character. The other, everyone has to sort of feel like they're part of this sort of living machine. And obviously, the other element is, I think, diversity. Right. The, the, the philosophies of Star Trek have to be in there somehow. The idic and uh, the prime directive and all of those things should be part of the moral fabric of the game part of its dilemmas yeah absolutely i think again if you're choosing to run a starfleet game and we'll come on to like 
different games capacities for playing non-Starfleet games but if you're playing a Starfleet game you absolutely have to have that moral compass front and centre possibly more than any other game with the possible exception of Doctor Who although that's a different moral compass I think like you said Idic infinite diversity infinite combinations is such a crucial element of Star Trek that if the game doesn't revolve around that on some level then you're not really might as well be playing Star Wars and that's not a diss on Star Wars at all but it's a very different beast or you could have named any space opera game because obviously you could just use these games uh, or someone might make a game that is just a setting where you've got your Klingons and your Romulans and your Borg and all of that and the same planets that people recognize and then run a campaign that is totally dissimilar to what the show does. You could run a outright looting campaign. It's possible. You could be playing a Ferengi game where all they do is trade and steal and is it still a Star Trek game? Even, you know, if you're just using the setting to do whatever, is it still a Star Trek game? I think it, it can still be. I think it's, it's up to the game master and his group, but the game as produced should be able, I agree with you, it should have a, an element of television simulation to it, let's say. The things that we see on screen are the things that we should be able to do easily in the game. It shouldn't be that, you know, whatever you're trying to do, you've seen it on, on TV, the heroes always do this sort of thing uh, and do it well, and then it's a real struggle to do it in the game because the rules don't support it. That's that's something that sometimes happens with licensed games like this. Yeah, and, and, and there are... There are the, the bigger elements and the smaller elements. For example, uh, in Star Trek, if you're, well, any character at all, but you're beaming someone up, the game should support the correct kind of, and not to get pretentious, but the right kind of feeling when you're beaming someone up. You should make a roll, and when they are beamed up, you should get a, a, a kind of feeling of, of satisfaction from that, uh, as opposed to just, you know, it being like a perfunctory thing. And, and by the same token, when you're playing someone involved in diplomacy... And you're brokering a peace treaty. Classic example with TNG, the Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra moment, when Picard figures out the language and he has that moment. That was a pure Star Trek moment. And there should be some allowance for being able to do that in the game. Right, as opposed to just like a social role and it's done. So creating that same suspense is difficult. And I'll, I'll tell you, one of the problems that I had with my own experience with a Star Trek game was that the players, they were sort of putting a different logic on events. So the problem that I got into in that campaign, and I don't know how long it lasted because I lost interest <laughs> just because of the way it was being done, is that the the characters were all just like you would in uh, you would watch a show and everybody's you know the sort of the chief engineer and the chief medical officer and there may be a junior officer in there but everybody's the top of their departments right they're all mm -hmm. bridge crew and this bridge crew that I had was uh, uh, really into delegating because that's how it would actually work <laughs> <laughs> oh yes of course yes the logic of using logic I suppose so the captain never left the bridge never went down on any away missions and that was a player character that I had to cater to that just didn't go on missions uh, because he didn't think it was logical and of course he played a Vulcan mm. so he felt he had the right to make that choice and then everybody else sort of took their cues from him and sort of sent their little teams I, I you know I made up departments I, I wanted to have a lot of NPCs to make the ship feel alive and so i had a lot of npcs uh, non-player characters 
around each one. So, you know, the, the, the doctor would have a nurse staff and, uh, you know, the engineer would have an engineering staff and all of that. And those people got sent into danger and in, to do things. You know, the TV show is absurd in that this bridge crew, the topmost officer in each department, does everything. And it seems like the Enterprise uh, D doesn't really need a thousand people on it. <laughs> no, that's very true. And we'll come on to this in more detail, but only one of the Star Trek RPG systems actually compensates for that and allows that to work and for no one to be bored. And it's crazy that my players weren't bored by it because they were initiating it at the time. But it does color my um, appreciation for every Star Trek game and uh, my plans for future Star Trek games. That, that's just as, uh, as a context. Let's Let's just get into these different games because there was a, a prototypical Star Trek game uh, in the late 70s which was basically a typewritten kind of Star Trek game. We're not going to cover that one uh, by Heritage Games, I think. The first big one is uh, the one by FASA, you know, a Star Trek game that was basically your only go-to from 1982 to 1989. It mostly covered the movie era, although it did have TOS products, and eventually started to branch out into TNG products, at which point Paramount pulled the plug on the license. Uh, essentially, uh, they thought the Star Trek universe that was being developed in the FASA game was a bit too bloodthirsty. And uh, as we saw in the early TNG era, where Gene Roddenberry really had a hand in it, uh, there was a, a trying to get away from that kind of conflict to the point where maybe it was detrimental to the show's uh, drama. So uh, we've talked about this on the show before. So the FASA game, have, have you played this one at all? Because my only real, I've never seen it really, but my only contact with it is that it, the Doctor Who game, the FASA Doctor Who game uses basically the same system. Yeah. So this is the one that I, I discovered just in time for it to get cancelled. Uh, I I'd re- I'd okay. discovered role-playing games a wee bit before this. And again... I kind of came to it that candidly through Doctor Who because I remember I remember reading the Doctor Who FASA system and thinking this is a wee bit bloodthirsty for Doctor Who and then I discovered the Star Trek one and thought oh I realized this is the one it was supposed to be used for I didn't play it a lot I essentially came on board in time for the TNG season one source book to come out which was the last product they put out in 1989. Yeah, so I went back and retroactively got as much of it as I could. I was lucky enough to get an original box set and and things like that. And I really love this system. It's so simple and would be considered like retro now, but it had so many nuts Mm -hmm. and bolts in it that were fantastic. The life path system for creating your character is really good fun. Any game where just making a character is fun is off to a good start as far as I'm concerned. And you could really develop unique characters through this system. It was all percentile based. It was heavily TOS, but it was TOS in a period where there was almost no canon at all. So FASA had much wider latitude than any other game that will come out to create whatever they want. And there's still quote unquote controversy about the Klingons in this game because they were based heavily off of John M. Ford's novel, um, I think Price of Glory or something like that. And there's a whole thing where he takes into account why did the Klingons look like humans in the TV series and why do they look different in the movies? And he's got this whole thing about they deliberately, the Klingons were deliberately creating fusion hybrids. And basically almost this entire game is now non-canon in like every sense of the word. 
Most of the scenarios, which were really well written for the most part, are still great. You can still play those. But yeah, the the Orion Sourcebook is still a brilliant example of how to take no information at all, really, and create an entire civilization. And it works really well. That's if you want to play pirates and what have you. They did use a lot of that information from the the game in other, you know, in later books, and even the comics seem to refer back to that as the canon of the yeah. time. So it, it it was pretty official. Until TNG sort of destroyed it with their take on Klingons, particularly. Yeah, absolutely. And and the same with the Romulans as well. That's a completely different take on the Romulans. The Romulans in FASA are way more like less violent Klingons. This game is so well-loved. It's still supported by fans to this day. There are still new fan supplements coming out. There's like an Enterprise-era source book. I've no doubt someone's writing a Discovery FASA rule source because we record this. So it's it really sort of latched on to Star Trek fans' hearts in a time when there wasn't much. Again, I kind of liken it to the West End Games D6 Star Wars system that came out when the films were dead. Return Jedi was out and there was nothing else coming out. So they had free reign and some of the best role-playing supplements are still those ones. Same, The same thing with FASA. I was doing a bit of research onto why they lost the license. And again, it's it's much like you said, it was considered too violent. But also apparently someone at Paramount, and I don't know how true this is, I know there's some truth to it, but they for some reason assumed, because they didn't know what role-playing games were, that you could only play the TOS crew. You couldn't make your own characters. So they thought all the violent stuff they were putting in or the combat stuff meant people were playing Kirk and Spock and McCoy and what have you in a much more violent scenario than they would have in the TV series. And Fassa were about to release some board game that was a ship combat simulator thing to go along with their other ship combat simulator they'd already released called like Operation Armageddon or something along those lines. And the premise was the Federation launching a preemptive attack on the Klingon and Romulan Empire. Yeah. <laughs> and Paramount apparently said, no, not having that, which, which I just thought was like a, FASA obviously went down a bit of a strange avenue. I mean, their, their TNG season one source book is unintentionally funny now because of the license they had to take with minimal information and so much of it reads like a madman's dream because it's just so, so wrong compared to what happens next. But they're using the series Bible probably, and, you know, and there's a lot of details in that if you've ever read it that are, quite different from the finished product though yeah but you still want to have that product out as soon as you can you know to cash in on the the big launch it's a little like uh reading the 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 first tng pocketbooks there's a lot of (laughs) yeah weird wonky stuff in there all the stuff that covers the movies is great because they've got a lot to work with and they don't need to extrapolate much but again it is much like those novels i remember there was there was an early thread in it where you had for some reason someone had discovered decided that Riker didn't like data and there was a lot of novels with that kind of bizarre rivalry. And it's the same with some of these scenarios. It has a much, much more militaristic federation that's very much expansionist and not the federation we would come to sort of know in next gen by any stretch. Like super colonize everything, make new weapons kind of a deal. And it's, yeah, it's an interesting tack, shall we say. Yeah, I think they were on safer ground when they created, for example, they had uh, a place called the Triangle, which is mm. a sort of no man's land uh, lawless area, I guess roughly triangular between the major empires, and that that you know that's the kind of thing that you can. I think the the New Frontier books kind of did the same. Let's let's explore a, an area of space that we've never gone to that can have different uh, social rules. You see what's there, and then if your players are sent into that area, you're not really stepping on any toes. You're not contradicting Klingon or Romulan lore or whatever because. You're exploring this other area entirely. And that still resonates on because just spinning forwards quickly, 
the current system has an area called the Shackleton Expanse, which essentially uses the exact same kind of motif. And I guess even the shows did the same because the Gamma Quadrant, the Delta Quadrant, and then so you can play around with areas that have been untouched and not contradict. And so for a game, that's a very smart thing to do if you're a game master and don't really want to contradict anything, especially if a show is going on in the same time period that you're using. You can just be at on the edges of space somewhere, choose a different place where you can give free reign to your ideas. So that's uh, that was a smart thing. So one of the things that is actually influential uh, in this first FASA game, uh, which is actually something they poached from the original space opera uh, role-playing game, Traveler, is that life path character generation thing. Because it turns up in most of the role-playing games we're going to look at today. It's like it was the way to produce characters for the Star Trek universe. And um, most of the games do this, right? Oh, yeah. That, that is one of the beautiful like love childs of Fassa's system is that generating characters, except in one of the release, one of the games we'll talk about, is actually really good fun because you actually create a story that's distinct and unique to every MP- every PC. And most other systems don't really have this. Um, I can only think of like, I think Cyberpunk had it for a while. And like you said, Traveller, even before you get to play, you're having fun, which is, which is a rare thing. Traveller had this, uh, originated it. And it's this mini game. In a sense, it is. It's a mini game where you, you choose your species. You, you'll choose the posting you want. You'll choose the, uh, it depends. The different, different games have different ways to, to do this life path thing, but you choose your early life. What, what was it before you went into the academy? What did you learn at the academy? What was your training cruise like? And each of these steps in your path gives you access to different uh, skills and abilities, things. And, and you know, <laughs> the, the original Traveler game, sometimes you could just kill your character off <laughs> inside of the character generation process. There were moments where, because of some of the randomness... See, I'd heard about that. I'd, I've never actually played... I've only ever played Mega Traveler, but I'd heard about that. I always thought that was an urban myth. I didn't realize that was actually a literal truth. I think the the real thing is... I, I don't know if you can actually... I mean, I, I've, I haven't played it either. So I'm not sure that it is true that you could die, but I think you could write yourself out somehow. It's no longer the character you want to play, or the character is maimed or scarred, or and it just becomes a concept that you do not want to play. And so you got to retire that character before it even makes it to the table, you know? In Traveler, everybody's sort of a, a military veteran. In Star Trek, you could, you know, theoretically have ensigns running around, so not everybody's at the same rank, but you got to make up for the, you know, how did Captain Picard become captain? You know, what skills did he pick up along the way? So the life path in FASA and then in other games is supposed to mimic that, to give them this rich backstory that they can then use in role-playing, and that justifies whatever skills and traits and attributes that, that they've picked up over the years to, to make them the heroes they are now. That's basically the, the point of that. Yeah, it's nice that you can legitimately in-game start off well-heeled, shall we say. Because in a lot of other games, like Dungeons & Dragons, for example, I think, you have to start off as a base beginning character who's not very good at a lot of things. Whereas every Star Trek game, practically speaking, has to have the ability to start off experienced and skilled because you have to be able to generate captains and admirals and lieutenants off the bat and not just everyone start as an ensign because that would be a very tedious role-playing experience. Yeah, it's closer to a superhero role-playing game where you'd already start with the abilities that Batman's already Batman, uh, even if there's maybe room to grow or change. When you're playing a superhero, it's not about leveling up 
You know, it's not about whatever promotions you can get because uh, you should already be very competent already. So it's similar to that. As far as FASA goes, how do you think it emulated the show at the time? I think it emulates TOS very well. It's got the right level of crunch. It's maybe a little bit too emphatic on combat, perhaps. But percentile just feels right for TOS like an old school system for old school Trek. The ship combat's good as well. I mean, the captain gives orders and the players have to interpret those orders. Weirdly, if, if, if I was to re-release the FASA Trek game today, I wouldn't change an awful lot. I'd make it a tiny bit less bloodthirsty, perhaps. I'd release it as a purely TOS game because it just feels right for that. But for TNG and and beyond, and weirdly enough, even for Enterprise, I would think it's completely wrong. It just it, it has the right flavour for the era it came out in. You have to buy into Trek... This might sound a bit silly to say this, but you have to buy into Trek to play the faster Trek game well and enjoy it. If you're just buying it off the shelf because you want to try a science fiction role-playing game and you don't know Trek from a hole in the wall, one, why would you buy it, obviously? But two, you wouldn't get a lot out of it because you need to really embrace the classic Trekness of it for it to work. I mean, it was quite an intricate game because the ship combat game was essentially a game on top of the game. Could be quite in-depth. And remember, at this point, they uh, didn't have a lot of official ships because they'd only gone up to... Star Trek Four was the one they were up to when this was in its sort of heyday. And so there weren't that many ship frames, as it were. So they had to make up an awful lot of them because there weren't that many on screen in TOS because they couldn't afford it. The movies didn't have that much ship combat. I mean, think about it. Motion Picture had one Klingon ship. Star Trek II had the Miranda class and nothing else. Three had a different Klingon ship. So there weren't that many ships available. So they had to really, really crank out lots of ships of the line. And you, and you had freighters and everything because latter expansions allowed you to play non-Starfleet. So they had to take all that into account. I remember playing... I mean, this was long, many, many years ago. In those days, this is pre-ready access to printers and, and computers and what have you. I mean, they were up to like 486s in terms of PCs that were available. So that's how old they were. I played a Vulcan engineer who we printed out the text and printing out pictures was a bit beyond. So I we used to cut out pictures of celebrities or whoever for our face claims to, stick, to literally glue onto our character sheets. And I had my Vulcan engineer was played by Sting, who I'd biroed in pointy ears on some publicity shot of him. And I remember we lost a warp cell because my Vulcan had taken the path of Colinar. So he was pure Vulcan, like pure logic. And he was arguing with the his human underling because my Vulcan couldn't let it go he had this thing about never letting anything go with humans we argued and argued and argued and literally the warp nacelle exploded and we lost the ship because rather than do something to fix the problem I was just trying to argue this other engineering to the ground and the rest of the party weren't happy with, with that because I'd, I'd engaged in pure role playing rather than common sense let's not have the ship blow up <laughs> rough <laughs> Okay, let's move on to the next one, which is uh, Prime Directive. Now, this is uh, We're not going to spend a whole lot, a lot of time on this one because it's not one of the major ones, but it does have a sort of strange longevity because um, originated in 1993, it was basically made by the same people who were making at the time the uh, Starfleet Battles. It was like a, a miniatures strategy tactical war game, right? What was missing was all the elements of actual role-playing and going down on planets and doing stuff. So what's interesting about Prime Directive is that it was really supposed to be modular with Starfleet Battles, and they took the tack... I mean, they had the same problem with it that I seem to have, (laughs) which is if everybody just gives orders, then there's no game. 
So they originated this idea. It was called Prime Teams. And uh, people were part of Prime Teams, which is basically away teams or landing parties. But you would play some expert that goes down on planets and takes care of stuff. So you, you might be a diplomat, you might be a scientist, you might be a security officer, but your task was to be part of a landing party. Every species had their own version, which is described in the game uh, as well. A lot of people didn't like that because you can play the captain and you can play the, the first officer and you can play as it was on TV. It was just not the same. They got into trouble with that and, and the game did not last. Uh, however, it was resurrected a number of times. Early on, 2002, they published a GURPS version of it. It's not by Steve Jackson Games, powered by GURPS, as they say. And then in 2005, they had a D20 version. Now, the one I have is the GURPS version, and that came with you know everything you needed just to play GURPS, basically, which is a... Uh, Basically a 3D6 kind of system where you roll under your attributes. It's, it's a very simple and streamlined game. Uh, and I'm a big GURPS head anyways. But this is one of the ones where you don't necessarily have a life path. In any case, you're not driving your character up to captain or anything. You're, you're just making this expert. And GURPS is a point by system where uh, here are a bunch of skills and attributes and and uh, advantages and disadvantages and they all have point values and you got to sort of make your character within the hundred points that are allowed what this game has become uh, and the reason that it keeps coming back and people keep keep it in print is that it is such a take-off. You were saying that FASA took some liberties. Prime Directive <laughs> it takes so many liberties because of the way it was created. It was created around a war game where, you know, you want to make money, you got to come out with different ships, different little miniatures and different maps. And and it's got to be very military as well because it's, it's about battles. So they created a lot of ships for a lot of aliens. If you ever saw an alien in the animated series... It's probably in there. There's a lot of species that, you know, there are dog people mm -hmm. and bird people and cat people that you've never seen on the show. In addition to everyone that you have seen, mostly in the TOS era. So the, the Tholians and the Gorn, they have a much bigger role in this universe where everybody seems to be at war, <laughs> you know? So, um, so that developed by itself as an alternate reality for years as the Starfleet Battles thing. And so the Prime Directive game is in that universe. And uh, you do have Klingons and Romulans who get their own source books. But essentially, it's this, you know, a much busier, let's say, political world than most of uh, the Star Trek that we know. And uh, as far as rules go, it's GURPS, except that for ship battles, you have a choice. You can either use the GURPS rules which are, you know, similar to what FASA was doing. Or you can use Starfleet Battles itself. And the rules, the basic rules for Starfleet Battles are included in the, the book. Take your character sheets and dice off the table. We're just gonna, we're just gonna play with miniatures for a while, which can be fun. I don't know if you've ever done this kind of thing before. Sometimes taking a break from the, the role playing and the pen and paper to just bring out a board game of some sort and play a mini game inside the game can, can be satisfying. I remember. FASA released, or they re-released their Starfleet Battles equivalent for Star Trek 3. They had a, for some reason, they thought Star Trek The Search for Spock was the right one to re-release it on. And I remember we played that, and mm. that was great fun. Just not worrying too much about the role-playing, except for the occasional, you know, can I give any more, Captain, kind of a, a comment. that I can empathise. That was, the sub-games sub can really work well. I am very much notorious for doing it. Uh, yeah, I've pulled out Car Wars, 
I've pulled out, uh, you know, I've had somebody come in with his board game of um, Formula D, which is a Formula One racing game, because we had a Formula One thing Hmm. going on in a Doctor Who adventure. And uh, can you come and run this somewhat complicated board game for me? And we'll just put some Doctor Who rules in there. Stuff like that. I love doing that. And I'm not above calling it a... uh, an assistant game master, just to make that happen. So Prime Directive has that element. But again, the problem with it was that it did not have the same feel as any of the shows, which doesn't mean it was a wrong take, because I kind of like that. If I were to go into doing more Star Trek role-playing, I'd probably cook up some kind of scheme that is like that, because it's closer to what a role-playing game is like, which is having a party, you know, not an, necessarily an asymmetrical one. I think I've played a lot of Doctor Who, which is asymmetrical in a sense, because the Time Lord and the companions are not on an equal footing, and yet if the game is good, it's balanced and it works. But for Star Trek, there is a lot of asymmetry. Kind of like the idea that it's more logical to have this you know, black ops kind of team, expert team, than it is for a bridge crew to just leave the bridge unattended, or worse, leave a player there. To me, it works better for role-playing adventures, but that was not the uh, consensus. So would you say that Prime Directive is more, rather than Star Trek role-playing, it's more role-playing in a Star Trek universe? Well, they take a lot of liberties with the setting itself, which makes it a bit non-Star Trek, in a way, you know, it's just, it's too far off from the canon. As far as the game setup goes, it is not a show that is impossible to make. There have been book series that have been similar. I think it still works and the characters can still have the same dilemmas. It's just, you're taking the, the sort of military hierarchy out of it, where maybe the top boss is just a lieutenant and everybody else is an ensign. I don't think that's a wrong way to do it. It's just not like the shows that we've seen. And, you know, Discovery kind of takes almost takes that leap where we're not going to follow the crew so much as follow the one character who is not a top boss. So a bit like Lower Decks, like bit like the Lower Decks episode of TNG. Yeah, yeah, a lot like the Lower Decks. I mean, if you can, if that episode seems to be, and they're, they're planning on a comedy series that's sort of supposed to be a Lower Decks kind of riff as well on CBS All Access. Hmm. There's nothing wrong with that concept. I just think that if people are going to buy a Star Trek game, they want to do that with it, good. If they want to do what's closer to one of the shows, they should also be able to do that. And Prime Directive did not allow that, per se. So this Prime Directive was a proper licensed game, because it's called Prime Directive as opposed to all the other games which have Star Trek in the title. And they have Klingons and Romulans, but it's just a different take on it, because it seems like... What's the point of paying the money for the license if you're not going to do it? Well, I think the real license that they were paying for was, and I don't know the ins and outs, but they were paying to put out Starfleet Battles. You know, at the same time as FASA was having the license for role-playing games. When that line collapsed, oh, well, here's uh, there, here's our chance to have, just like D&D originally happened, it was a war game, and then suddenly, let's uh, let's see what happens around the campfire. Let's... Let's put some role-playing in there. And that's how role-playing games got their start Mm. from war games. So this is a war game that, you know, 10 years on or whatever, but it's a war game that, oh, let's let's have a a sort of modular approach to it and say, if, you know, you want to get your ship to that planet, and then you actually want to role-play what happens on the planet, you actually want to have this little side mission in between the battles, then here's the book that you can do it with. Almost an afterthought to a war game. Uh, Meanwhile, your captain's on the ship in case it gets attacked, and then you can go back to the miniatures. That is basically what happened with that. But like I said, this is not considered one of the major Star Trek games. 
because it isn't as versatile as the others. Because the next one, 1998, 1999, and this is the one that, and even won uh, the Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Game at the time, the Last Unicorn version. Hmm. That's the company. Using what they call the Icon System. This is the one I own most of the products for. This is the one I played. But it's one that you don't particularly affect. Am I right? Well, it has... This is very much a creature of two distinct halves in that the support for it is wonderful. 19 releases, splits its core books into TOS, TNG, and DS9. Each one has a wildly different tack and allows you to play a completely different strata of the Star Trek universe. But the... Hmm, how can I put this? <laughs> the character generation is crackers. The combat is slow. There are 24 skill slots on your character sheet, which may not be enough. You practically need to have a photographic memory just to know what your character can do. I mean, the starship combat's pretty good. I mean, it has rules for the Picard maneuver, so they drill down pretty far into this, which I like. And there's a steep learning curve on everything in it. I mean, it's not a game for beginners, I don't think, at all. You can have a bridge crew that all are possessed of wildly divergent skill sets. Your captain will be good at something, your tack officer will be good at something else, but they wouldn't ever be able to swap. So it kind of didn't feel very Star trek in that response. It's not an elegant system. You've got your races and then your overlay skills, and it makes me think of D&D a little bit in that, with classes in D&D. And you pick packages that represent life experiences and what have you. It's kind of like they've got all the right elements but they just don't hang together very well. But again, I'm willing to forgive an awful lot because the support for this game was amazing. One of my favourite supplements ever, The Way of Dera, the Romulan source book. Oh, it's a box set. Box set, actually. sorry, you're quite yeah, a box set. Yeah. It's one of my favourite supplements of all time. I've never played it, I freely admit that, but just reading it, it's a, it was so well put together and I liked it so much. It's one of those ones I would always keep and read and perhaps I need more of a life, but I'd read it more and more each time. I would like be fascinated by the nuance they put into this species. When you actually think about what's on screen, there's not a lot about the Romulans at all, really. They're, you know, shoulder pads and ersatz Romans. That's about all we really get. The Way of Colin R, brilliant brilliant source book again i think the holodeck adventures one i seem to remember being good i never owned it but i did read it and they cover so much in their support and the fan support is still wonderful as well i mean it kind of assumes you're going to be starfleet unless you're buying the ds9 book which is a really great core book one thing though that i to this day i'm not sure what i feel about but the combat system is lethal it is blink and you're dead phasers can basically level mountains in this you get hit by any kind of energy beam you are dead which Mm -hmm. is a mixed blessing because on one level it's kind of true to the show in the sense that your enemies are going to be firing lethally at you most of the time 99% of the time we've got the classic you know phasers on stun so you're not going to be killing many people so it's kind of leveled against you in that respect and the combat requires you to roll initiative each round and it's quite slow and the dodging's quite slow but again if you buy into it and you've got the right party it's great but it does require you to make that leap and be willing to like let combat slow down and you can spend a long time creating a character in this and have them die in their first combat mission now again that's partly up to the gm obviously it's a thing of parts and those parts don't always work well together but if you look at the parts individually they're really really lovely it's like a painting don't look too close to it look at it from a distance and admire the art from that point of view i think is is how i would sum up the uh, lug system the system itself is you know basically very simple in uh, in practice well not it's not maybe not in practice <laughs> but in concept you have a number of dice which are equal to your the number on your attribute whatever the score on your attribute and one of the dice will be a different color it's that's the drama dice so if you roll a six or a one on that it creates 
unexpected critical successes or misses. That's sort of how it works. Uh, you've got some courage points, which are sort of like hero points that you can, you know, affect things uh, with. And your character is also rated on renown. And these are courage and renown will actually be ported over to the next game we're going to talk about. So it is influential also as far as what you can and should do with a Star Trek game. I don't disagree with you that your characters become these massive skill lists. And I think that's the problem with a lot of Star Trek games, FASA included, where if you're playing some fantasy game, then maybe you've got some spells and you've got some special abilities and, you know, superheroes have superpowers. And when you're doing something that is supposedly in a realistic kind of world where people don't necessarily have powers unless maybe they're telepaths uh, in Star Trek, it'll be skills. It'll be about having a lot of skills or maybe some sort of broadly defined uh, skill sets which I think would have been a better approach for this. But there are so many nitty-gritty little skills that hopefully will come into play, or I mean, guess as the game master, you try to make them come into play. It's a huge, huge skill list. And what I dislike about that approach is that you often have players simply forgetting that they can do things. That happens a lot. Mm. Or they're, they're always going down their list to see if there's something that applies to the particular situation, which slows things down just on the what do I do next level. And I think we did have that problem when we played. It felt like something of a grind. Obviously, on a meta level, the the lethality of the uh, of the the battles and and whatnot is telling you not to get into fights. <laughs> I, I had that experience with the uh, Gerbs game, where Gerbs the damage isn't so lethal, but it is quite lethal, uh, especially certain weapons, you know, because it has a realistic combat system. And the first time one of my players shot someone else, it was like a Western game, and one of my players shot uh, a bad guy with a shotgun. Rolled the damage and then saw what the damage was and then looked at his hit points and sort of made the realize, oh crap, if I get hit with any bullet, <laughs> this is likely to be the result. And I, I can't survive a, a, you know, not a shotgun blast anyways. So, <laughs> so, uh, suddenly it's not like, uh, you know, a big hit point attrition and the character's sort of getting fatigued as he goes and the, the old joke about the, the D&D warrior who falls off a cliff and walks away, you know, because he's got so many hit points. I mean, that's true of Star Trek. If Or even the Doctor Who game, which we both like. If you get like a glancing blow, it's three uh, points of damage. But if you get a full-on blow or um, a critical blow, it's L. Yeah, the old lethal, lethal. Death as a result. There's no hit points involved. Uh, and that would be true. If you get hit by a Dalek, you're dead. If you get hit by a phaser blast from a Klingon, you're dead. Mm. You know, you're vaporized. And that's, that's just telling you to find diplomatic solutions, to find other solutions, which which is one of the lessons of Star Trek anyway. There is action, but it, we've got to find a better way, right? Yeah, I think, I think all of the Star Trek games require a little bit of GM fiat, perhaps more so than a lot of others, because let's put it this way. Kirk is not going to go out the same way as a red shirt. Actually, that's a bad example because Kirk went out really badly. Okay. <laughs> One of the bridge yeah. crew isn't going to go out. Riker is not going to go out like a well, a gold shirt in his time. And so when it comes to things like that, like the lethality, you're right. It does encourage sort of genuine Star Trek role playing in that we need to find a diplomatic solution. We need to talk our way out of this. We need to use our intellect. But at the same time, people are going to get shot. At some point, the players are going to want to phase a battle. They just are. Doesn't matter how true blue a Star Trek fan they are. 
they're going to kind of want to fight even if they're setting phases on stun they're going to want to shoot down something the funny thing is with last unicorn games their starship combat system was really good and reflected the show much better than their you know hand-to-hand combat you just need someone to fly and fire the weapons and watch the shields but they had a really nice mechanism where your science officer would have to get a sensor lock on your opposing ship and they'd need to keep doing that each turn and if they got a good lock that would add a bonus to the tactical officer who'd be firing the weapons and there's a nice kind of hand-in-hand thing that felt like proper teamwork and like i said but when you're firing a phaser uh, or being fired at I think the GM really has to step in a fair bit with this system because obviously you don't want your captain dying on the first mission if they beam down or any of the PCs dying straight away, which is genuinely possible with this system. Well, do give them bonus points for the techno babble chart that they have. <laughs> we never got a Voyager book because the game died before uh, they could put out a Voyager book. But I think if you p- played Voyager, this is the only table you'd need. The <laughs> techno babble chart. So it basically allows you to just create on the fly terms that sort of kind of make sense and actually pull off uh, effects thanks to it. I, you know, I'll echo your thoughts on the supporting products that came with it. You mentioned the holodeck uh, adventures thing. There was like a time travel book as well, an espionage book. So if you really wanted to do these other types of campaigns or these other types of stories, which the show did give us, then you could, and you could actually make it all about that if you wanted. So it gave scope to what you could do. It was not a, uh, you know, TNG only or DS9 only or TOS only or Starfleet, you know, exploration game only. There was all of this other stuff. And I think with the, uh, the way of the Dara, which is the Romulan box set, you could legitimately play Romulans and do this whole other side, you know, different adventure completely and explored a different set of values. And I, I, it's only, I, you know, I'm really sorry that it uh, ended when it did, this game, because there was so much else that was on uh, the books. Because they did release uh, the Endorian source books, really good as well, that I loved. Uh, but they released like a, an Academy, a Starfleet Academy box set, which is pretty neat, even have a diploma in there for yourself. But I can't believe that was a priority. Let's play cadets. I mean, it's it's a thing, but... I can't believe that was a priority when certain products that were almost entirely written or partly written didn't get to come out as the game collapsed. So we never got, except as some rough internet PDFs, they do exist. A lot of the makers of this game sort of released their stuff for people to see for love of the game. You know, there was going to be a Klingon box set. There was going to be a Dominion War box set, a Cardassian box set. Those would have been amazing. There would have, you know, there would have been so much else that we're never going to get <laughs> except as rough, unfinished, and obviously no layouts, no pictures. or Because this is really the first game as well that has proper color graphics, which looks kind of like modern games do today. Mm. Uh, hardcover books, you know, a lot of hardcover books with color uh, photos and illustrations. So it looked good. And of course, all these PDFs don't have any of that because they can't. I was sorry to see it go because... I would just use the material even with another system, even just to read, yeah, even yeah. just as a Trek fan, uh, which is one of the reasons I buy all the the Doctor Who, the Cubicle 7 Doctor Who source books. It's not necessarily as a play aid. And I don't think I need it. It's because it's, oh, it's, it's like having, you know, a, a reference book on the show. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. As far as my own campaign in the Lug uh, version, I don't remember much from it. I probably pulled from adventures that were available in the books. 
principally. I don't know how many we had, but like I said, I felt it was derailed by all the NPCs getting all the, the action. It was kind of ridiculous. <laughs> uh, but I did repurpose the um, A Fragile Piece, which was a neutral zone adventure book. Yeah. So you had like five linked adventures that, that really sort of tied into the way of the Dara. You have the box set and you also have like, this adventure book that you could also, you got a good reason to get both because they work together. And I repurposed that. I changed the Romulans into Dominators and the Klingons into Kuns or whatever. And um, uh, made it into a, a far future DC Heroes game. So I always find a way. <laughs> that, yeah, that sounds fantastic. I would like, wish I'd be able to play that. So yeah, let's talk about Decipher now. Because Last Unicorn doesn't last very long. But in to, from 2002 to 2005... Uh, it's Decipher who has the the license. And again, this is a bit like Prime Directive because Decipher at the time, for the longest time, had the license to create the CCG, the collectible card game, mm. which is how I got the name Ciscoid. And I mean, my association with that game at the time sort of created my internet persona and branding. And I worked with the company, wrote articles for the company. They paid me in cards. Uh, <laughs> and then eventually they decided, well... Uh, We've got a gaming studio. We don't have any role-playing games. Let's develop that side of it. And uh, and so they did. And I think they had the Matrix game or the, the Lord of the Rings game uh, yes. is theirs as well. Yeah. And this is the same system that they used, more or less. Uh, the CODA system that they used for the Lord of the Rings books, uh, because they also had the Lord of the Rings CCG. You know, it's all tied in. Uh, they used for their Star Trek game. Really, they bought out Last Unicorn's studio as well. So there's a lot in here that is reminiscent, even as the look of it is reminiscent of the Last Unicorn games, because it's some of the same people are working on it. So again, you get courage and renown, but uh, for once you don't get the life path character creation process. This is closer in some ways to D20, I would say, from what I've seen of it. And it is notorious for um, bad organization, bad editing. Character generation is the thing. I've got this double underlined on here. Two things. Oh, yeah. This is basically reminded me of D&D Third Ed, but using 2D6 instead of D20. You actually legitimately need a cheat sheet to generate characters because the character generation is so badly laid out that I used to be on the forums of, of this and, and the fan support and everything. And like that was the thing. There were a, a bunch of cheat sheets because no one could figure out. Literally, someone had to go in and decipher the character generation rules and create a cheat sheet so that they could... They lived up to their name. Yeah. Because you did need to decipher Decipher's books. And there was like a, a genuine kind of movement, too strong of a word. But I push that if you're introducing this game to new people, make sure you give them a copy of the cheat sheet to create character generation. Because otherwise, people are just going to look at this and go, no, sorry, not doing this. It's probably the worst laid out section of rules in any role playing book I have ever come across. The actual production values are probably better than Last Unicorns. The games, the books look lovely, but they are just a complete mess. I think it may have suffered from the Frankenstein's monster approach to, you know, creating a game company because from what I've seen, it's like sometimes it's they'll use one term and then sometimes they'll use another term and skills have different names, mm. but it's they're meant to be the same thing. And it's like you got too many cooks and not enough proofreaders. Yeah, I mean, it's um, like I said, the Last Unicorn game is a game of parts that don't hang together. The Decipher game is is a book of two halves. In that, like I said, the rules are really badly laid out. Doesn't assume you're going to be playing Starfleet. You could quite legitimately, because this had a different approach. Instead of having era source books, it had a narrator and a player guide, 
and they both covered like all eras that were available at the time you would still have wildly divergent skill sets and and i and as an experiment i did this when i was running it i ran two separate games i found that if people created low-level characters like ensigns and like lieutenant jgs the game was fine they could play it and it worked if you decide to create high-level characters like captains and what have you the game breaks very suddenly because everybody becomes super competent really quickly and you have to rack up the difficulty level ridiculously high if you have captain picard in this the guy walks on water he walks through walls practically he's like untouchable and he can do pretty much anything and you really have to make make him come up against like he has to arm wrestle q every week for him to have any kind of a challenge and it was really really weird and the other thing was and this is kind of like this is not a fault of the game so much as a pet peeve of mine. I think as I stated in the last podcast I was on, I don't like Voyager. Really can't stand it, bar a couple of elements. And the Decipher Narrator and Player's Guides, because Voyager was the only ongoing series at the time it came out, Voyager is shoehorned into everything. Like, really haphazardly shoehorned in. You can't create Andorians using the base sets, for example. But you can create Talaxians no Camper. And I bet everyone was crying out to say... I want to play a mildly psychic, annoying person that only lives to nine years old and then sparks over dead. Or I want to play this annoying polka dot faced lizard guy who everyone loves and can cook and annoy people in equal measure. So, (laughs) you know, and the other thing was with a ship combat, not by any means like a terrible system, but they had hydrogen ships in the base set, but no no Klingon ships. Hydrogen ships, yes. Klingon ships, no. And again, not really a failing of the game particularly, but I do think it speaks to not really understanding your audience that well. You know, personally, I dislike the whole D&D approach, which is the split book release. Uh, players get one book and uh, Game Masters get the other book. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, that's just two books for the Game Master to buy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it never works out with the players are buying their own book and you're buying your own. No, 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 that's not how it happens. <laughs> you know, an extra book to buy, just put them in a box set so you can have it all in one place. You know, that can be... Very annoying. And you're right about the the different approach to releases, though. Not just that it's this one is an all-in-one, every show in one, two books. It's just that the the themes of the, and we'll see with the last game as well, the themes that they pick to create the source books that come out later are completely different uh, approaches. So that's interesting because I don't know if each game is looking at their predecessor and saying, well, they did this and we're not going to release. Does the market want another Klingon source book, Romulan source book, that kind of thing? Because Last Unicorn did it with, let's do species and uh, adventure themes. Hmm. Decipher has, you know, manuals for aliens, starships, creatures. And then, uh, you know, Worlds was just released as a PDF. I guess the, the game was being benched at that time. So so it's looking at these larger categories of things. I'm thinking there's a lot of crossover as well, the redundancy. You know, aliens also had all the aliens that were already in the core books and maybe didn't add as much as they could have. But it's certainly not the sort of expansionist, uh, let's go wild, let's fill in some holes that Last Unicorn and even FASA did. And one of the really big differences in the rules settings between this and Last Unicorn, but I, I wanted to point out, having played both of them, whereas in Last Unicorn games, you can die at the drop of a hat. In Decipher, it's almost impossible to die. The combat doesn't really allow for death. You can really go to hell and back in this, and your character won't die, which I just thought was an interesting contrast. They've taken a very different tack on it, which I suppose, again, weirdly, almost sort of like counterintuitively, also feels like Star Trek, because 
how often does a bridge crew member die ever practically never so it's Tasha one so yeah it's just again weirdly contradictory they, they both feel like Trek but if I'm going to be honest if you were going to merge the two games together I would want the layout of Decipher the starship combat of Last Unicorn Games but with the sort of general character elements of Decipher again if I was going to melange these two together although I wouldn't do that at all just if I had to because I'm trying picking the best of both worlds pun intended they both have massively obvious failings and massively obvious high points, which seems to be a running theme in Star Trek role-playing games. Now, another one of the Decipher books that never came out was uh, Mirror Universe source book as well. So that would have been the first time that that's really attempted, I think, in any of the games. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, no one has attempted it either or since. I mean, the highlight... I managed to get hold of a PDF of that. And the highlight for me, it would have been a really good source book, just full stop, just as a sort of headline. But... They did Mirror Universe Borg in it. And if you ever do come across it and you run Decipher or whatever, don't ever bring in Mirror Universe Borg. Because for some reason, just keeping with the theme of the Mirror Universe is bad. The Borg in that are the most lethal creation I've seen in a role-playing universe that wasn't like instant godlike powers, boom, I've blown up your son. The Borg in that essentially take all of the weaknesses of the Borg. For example, they don't notice you if you, unless you're doing something. So you can destroy some of them before they come after you in this the borg are just pure lethality they are constantly expanding and if you go near them they attack you they it doesn't matter whether you're inferior or superior technology if you've got something they want or not if you're like low level tech they destroy you if you're high level tech they attack you and if you beam on board their ship the whole crew just comes after you doesn't matter if there's two of your 20 of you every single borg comes after you instantly and gets you so they're completely unplayable as an adversary. But it was really interesting to read like the background fluff they did for them. But completely unplayable. And I don't know if they did that as a sort of joke because it was never going to get released or what. But just, yeah, interesting read. But crazy, crazy villains that would not work in Star Trek at all. Because, again pure evil and they didn't seem to have any weaknesses at all well with the mirror universe being so important in the discovery show i'm guessing it's only a matter of time before the the next game approaches that section of the star trek universe in some way uh in some source book because there's a lot more interest in it a lot more information about it than there used to be and that next game is the let me get this real star trek adventures Yes. And it's by a company called Modifius, and it's taking everything in me, not to say Mephidius. Or <laughs> I said that. It's not good. I'm glad it's not just me, because literally I was saying Mephid- the whole time I was saying Mephidius. And yeah, I don't know why I've made that transposition as well. But just quickly, I actually interviewed one of their head chaps last year um, asking about Discovery, and they do not have the license for Discovery yet. Their license, oh, their license okay. goes all the way up to Nemesis. So they've got all of the, the all of Star Trek up to Nemesis, excluding Discovery, because I specifically asked about that because it was it had started coming out or what have you at that point when I interviewed him, and he said we're looking into it, but we've got so much material to get through first. I don't think it's a huge priority for them. And by the time that they're ready for a, like a second wave or third wave, it just won't be just Discovery. There'll be a lot of other Star Trek material out there probably from CBS All Access, if all their plans go right. So. This Modifius game. Okay, so I've looked at it. It's very pretty. That's my first assessment. <laughs> they really don't want the PDF version to be printed out by no, players. No, no. Oh, my God. I, it, yeah, it's a nightmare, it's, isn't it? Yeah, it's all on black pages with white text or colored text. And I do find it a little bit 
the difficult. I tried to get like a, a handle on it for this recording. And the organization of it, the graphic work is so distracting at times that I found it hard to find the categories or subcategories I was, I was looking for. And then they put all the, the history of the Star Trek universe up front instead of at the back. So like the game stuff only starts around page 75. That's all very confusing <laughs> as a way to, to work these games. I, I don't know about you, but, but you really rate this game highly, right? Well, you've, you've played it or? Yes, I've played it. I have this, I have a strange curse following me about this game because other than games I've run of it, I've played about four or five games of Star Trek adventures at different like conventions and different people. And, Every single time I sign up for the game and I think, oh, great, I'm going to finally play member of the bridge crew, the captain, whatever. Every single time. And then they've not been connected games, but every single time the GM has pulled a quick one and it actually turns out, oh, no, actually, you're not Starfleet crew. You're aliens that have possessed the Starfleet crew and have destroyed the Federation. And last year I played one and apparently we'd been brainwashed and we released some virus that destroyed the Federation. And we had just stolen the ship and were flying around and we only got our memories back right at the end. And I was just so, it was a good game, but I was so hacked off because I just want once to be on the bridge and do something Star Trek again. Every time something has stopped it from being the case. But, but <laughs> yeah, the layout is not great. It's all set up like L cars, which is the proprietary Star Trek next generation onwards computer system. Yeah, the console looking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the it, colored consoles. Yeah. Yeah, the multicolored consoles. And it, it looks lovely as a sort of piece of concept. It'll be great. But as a role playing thing, I'm completely with you. It is not fun for printing and finding things in it is just confused by it. I don't really know. I know why they took this approach, but they should have peeled back a little bit on it. I thought when I first read it, if they'd done the flavor text as L cars and the role playing stuff, as role-playing stuff that was clearly laid out, you'd have had the best of both worlds. Again, I've overused that wordplay. I didn't mean to. You know, that would have been ideal. But the um, the character generation in this, I think, is the best system in any Star Trek role-playing game so far. Again, it's a life path, but it's like a tiered one. So you can randomly go on the life path system and come up with something completely at the whim of fate and dice rolls. Or you can pick and choose on the life path to craft a certain type of character. Or if you're an experienced role-player... Or, and you don't want random elements, you know exactly what you want, you can allocate points, which is great. I think that's a really nice layered system that allows you to do whatever you want. Also helpful for detailed NPCs if you want as well. And it also allows for like a couple of career-defining events in your life that have radically shifted your character. For example, when Picard was a cadet and he got stabbed by the... Cossackin. Um, uh, that was so close then, Siskoid. Ah, <laughs> Sorry. Now I look like a chump. <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, when he got stabbed by the, by the Norsican, obviously changed Picard's life and made him take chances, etc. This system allows for things like that, which is great. And the characters evolve and you have things called values. They're sort of sentences that define your character's personality to some extent. So I don't believe in the no-win scenario would be one that Kirk would have, for example. And they're really good. They're kind of ephemeral in some ways, but they're great for role-playing. And the rules here are very flexible in a lot of ways. You can have, when you're generating a character, you can randomly roll the species they belong to and the tables are era specific. So let's say you were playing in Voyager's era. Why would you want to? You would have more races available than if you were playing in the Enterprise era. So this book does account for that, which is quite nice. You can make genetic hybrids like Spock, half human, half Vulcans. That works. But the best addition to the role-playing Star Trek lore in this, I think, by a country mile is as we were talking about earlier with prime directive and, and all of the systems why would you have your bridge crew beam down your you know your top department heads and this allows you to 23 skidoo ensigns 
that can beam down landing parties and you can keep those ensigns and they can be your go-to ensigns for any situation where you're beaming down where the captain shouldn't go down and this is such a great tool for like long-term campaigns because you can like you said before the enterprise has got just over a thousand people the enterprise d has just over a thousand crew well this allows you to play those 1000 crew you can beam down to planets get destroyed by an exploding rock or the whim of some crazy alien with amazing mental powers and they can die and it doesn't affect your main character and you can just recreate another instant and this can go on uh long term which I think is such a brilliant mechanic. I, I remember playing Ensign Ricky and my friend was playing Ensign Mort. And we had a great time because you can totally create a whole character from whole cloth. You've got basic stats, you're doing a mission and you can just have crazy fun and be a bit kind of reckless because it doesn't matter if this character dies. But if they don't, you put them in the NPC bank, as it were. And eventually you can really genuinely come up with the whole crew just by these really quick random rolls or using example templates. And I, I love that. That's one of my favorite rules additions to any kind of like IP specific, setting specific game ever. As a way to, to handle asymmetry, it's a little bit like something that they did in Ars Magica. Because in Ars Magica, you, you roleplayed a, a magus, a wizard, and those wizards were so powerful and so versatile that it, it would unbalance the game to play any other type. And yet you needed, you know, you need guys to just do the fighting or uh, other things. So every player would actually generate a mage. And sometimes the mage would stay at home and sometimes he'd go on adventures. And then you'd use your companion instead if your, if your mage is staying at, at home. So everybody had a mage and a companion and the companion would be, you know, sort of an expert basically represent another class but you'd also create two grunts who are just these fighter types who go along on these missions and are cannon fodder so in, in that case you'd have to create four characters of uh, different depths but i like that because sometimes you'd use your uh, your support character and sometimes you'd use your real character and sometimes that person would be would be turned into a cube uh, a foam cube and crushed and other times that character would become Chief O'Brien. You know, t- mm. t- technically, mm. uh, if you ran your game long enough, you could actually kind of do that. The rules generally, they're not bad rules in this. They're not very well written. They're very verbose and a bit distracting the way they write them. But once you sort of wrap your head around them, they're good. I mean, it's a skill plus stat and you roll 2d20. So like if you had a command of three and a presence of 10, then you would have to roll under 13 or less to generate a success on your 2d20 roll. Very simple mechanic. One of the problems is, and I I don't know if they're trying to leave this up to GMs or not, but they don't really spell out a lot of the combos that you need. Like if you're commanding an ensign, what do you, what combination do you use? If you're doing diplomacy, what combination do you use? They don't really spell a lot of that out. Now the GM shield that's come out for this spells out some of it, but it's still very vague. Now if the idea is it's up to the GM, grand, got no problem with that, but I feel like they should have spelt that out. And there's another, like social skills are really confusing in that respect because they don't spell out anything about it at all. Now there's another sort of group meta currency called momentum where you earn sort of bonus dice, bonus points, for a communal pot, which you get by rolling more successes than you need. So if you roll two successes, but only one, one of them goes in the pot that can be used by any player at any given point when things are near the knuckle and you need to roll big. Problem is, and again, this is again, a GM has to step in. There are ways to create perpetual momentum machines and you can keep generating momentum. The GM just has to step in, but it's a kind of like a pseudo failing of the system. The other end Mm -hmm. of this is threat, which is the same thing. It's, It's momentum for GMs where a player can say, okay, you take a point of threat so I can get an extra dice roll thing on this, which is grand. But I read this several times to try and get a handle on this. 
but it's it's a pointless mechanic because it presupposes that there's some objective universal sanctioned level of difficulty for any role that the GM cannot deviate from ever. Instead of like the obvious thing of, well, let me put it this way, Siskoid. Have you ever GM'd a game where you weren't setting the threat level, the damage level, the, the difficulty level for any given role for a player? Yeah, not really, unless I'm uh, reading straight out of an adventure module and I do not want to adapt anything to my group. Yeah, uh, which yeah. is 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 my style. But say, say someone was just reading through a game adventure that was pre-written and made no changes, as perhaps I did when I was uh, 16 year old. I, I know I've done that. We spent a year on the Temple of, of Elemental Evil, so <laughs> I, I know I was just reading through the book. Uh, I did not plan out a year's worth and adapt it to my group because I didn't know what my group would be, you know, 12 months later. So uh, it's just like a massive dungeon. So the threat mechanic, I'm sure it looks lovely on paper, but it's functionally useless because there aren't that many scenarios that have been published for this. If you are going by like you know, the logical method you just described of using a pre-written adventure and just reading it out sort of blankly and using their difficulties. So so threat's kind of a bit pointless. It seems a bit, feels a bit tacked on. There, there's a lot of uh, resource management to this because there's also like determination yep. uh, goes with values. Uh, as a way to generate what I'll call hero points. Yeah. Uh, you know, points to, to change the, the, how the game is going. There's a movement in, I don't think I'm wrong to say that there's a movement in current role playing design thought that really seeks to bring in elements from board games or, you know, other tabletop games, which are popular, just to hook those types of gamers into role playing. Uh, I, I talked uh, at length about this on a recent Dial G for Gamer over at Pultipixels podcasts about the new Torg Eternity game, which has, you know, like, has like a sort of a CCG, you know, card game, side game to it as well, uh, you know, uh, tokens. And so there's like elements of board games. And I recently read the, the new Paranoia game, which also has this like card mechanic inside the game. Now, this doesn't have that, but the way you sort of seem to hoard resources, it's like Settlers of Catan kind of. You know, let's uh, let's generate momentum, turn in the momentum for points to do other things. Or there's a resource management game there where that could sidetrack the role playing element if you're not careful. But I think that's like ported over from other types of games. Yeah, well, this one has three, doesn't it? Like I said, momentum, threat, and determination. I mean, smacks of excess to me. But yeah, and the idea that there are traits that situations have traits. Like keywords, yes, uh, that that then come into play with your values, with your with whatever else, uh, and that's like a card game mechanic. Even though there are no cards for it, mm. it's a card game mechanic to have these keywords on there, and that you know that they would be activated in certain uh, situations. Or we're seeing a lot more of these hybrids lately. I always like gorgeous books and board game mechanics coming into it. I don't know how I feel about it as a, you know, as an old school, I'm not an old school gamer. I, I'd say I'm more of a narrativist kind of guy, but hmm. uh, I'm very new school in my approach to the storytelling and all of that. But, you know, I, I still come up from advanced Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. So when I like my games to get simpler than more complicated, but when they get more complicated these days, I, I think it's like they're 
they're pulling from other types of games. Yeah, I mean, part of it just reeks of, here kids, buy this game, here's the, the first taste is free. Well, not free, but this is the first taste, but you also need to buy all these supplements that are, you know, tokens, cards and what have you to play the full game with a full experience. The, the rule should be, does it make the game flow smoother and does it make the game better? And I can't really see it in this particularly, but... They do do away with the, the large skill lists, I, I find, in this. Uh, it feels like you get much broader categories of things you can do, and then maybe you've got some expertise. But just like the show, the, the chief engineer is just good at engineering, yeah, which means a, a lot of things. Generally, I, I like it more for that, uh, because I, I hate the large skill list that nobody will ever use. Who cares about astrophysics? Stellar cartography as a, you know, a definite yeah. different skill. Uh, I, I like that it's more streamlined in that sense, but then it gets into these, feels like you're toggling switches, uh, World of Warcraft style, which was a problem with many games in the previous decade. It swings the other way for combat because it, combat is, it's incredibly simplistic in this. You basically line up, take turns, shoot at each other until no one's got any hit points. Does it require miniatures and, and maps? Because it seems to imply that it does, and, and the company does sell them. They want you to buy them. You don't need them, need them. It does make your life a bit easier with measurements and distances, but they're not 100% crucial. They push them, and they're always talking about these exclusive... Like, there's um there's this amazing Borg Cube deluxe super special mm-hmm. version of it, which has got all the rules in, maps of the galaxy, and exclusive, like, Lakuts of Borg and something else miniatures and what have you. I got one of them sent to me as a, as a promotional thing. I've got a Picard one, and they're, they're grey and they're plastic, and they're lovely and very well detailed. Bit of a swine to paint. But, yeah, they're trying to push all these exclusive ones, and you've got away team sets, and they're nice. And they're lovely to have on your table if you've got the space and the inclination, but they're not 100% crucial. They're just, they're, they're nice three-dimensional flavor. What's weird is the combat rules are really simple. What's really odd is they're not fast. They're quite slow. It's a halfway house between Decipher and Last Unicorn in that it takes two, about two or three hits to take you out. So it's not instantly lethal, but you're not also a tank. And there's lots of flavor in the combat section, but no real rules. It talks a lot about tactics and how you should have a plan and an approach and try to minimize combat and be Starfleet. But whilst they're nice to read, they're kind of meaningless in, in the context of the rules. There's no dice rolling or literal advantage to having a plan of you go here, you go here, and we'll approach them in a pincer movement. No advantage at all. It's just they encourage you to talk about it, which is great in terms of role playing, I suppose. But in terms of rules, all the flavor is kind of meaningless. The ship combat, after a few goes around, is quite good. It's very confused to start with because you've got to figure out who's rolling when and when your ship is rolling or when the PC is rolling. And that's a kind of a sticky wicket because sometimes it takes the focus off, off of PCs because you're rolling for the ship instead. And so, but it's, it's quite a good, again, it's kind of a mini game that has, that's a bolt onto the role playing game. And it's nice. It kind of needs a cheat sheet again, but just have everything laid out in front of you. One thing I will say though is you can create your ship in this. They have things called frames, which is like, literally the ship frame so you would say right this is a galaxy class ship okay you pick your name your registry number all that jibber jabber and then you do your little add-ons you tack on things like this like fast recharge rates so we've we've put a bit more juice into the phases on this one because we're going to be out on the romulan neutral zone and we need to be loaded for bear or we're exploring and we're going a great distance so we need our warp engines to be a bit have a bit more shush than the average galaxy class and you can create i haven't seen a system for creating like a personal ship if you like that this good since the uh, firefly system um, that margaret weiss did and that was a 
bit of a clunky system, but the ship gen system, you could really make a ship that was distinctly yours. You know, there might be a hundred to one galaxy class ships, but your one, the USS Blibbidi Blah, is very different to the others because it can do this that the other ones can't and it can do that that the other ones can't. It might not be so good at the other thing. You're making a, another character, essentially, that everyone takes part in. So that actually, I think, is... I don't know if it's the best combat system, but it's the best ship creation system. Let's put it that way. And maybe some of these rules that are, seem to be missing uh, might be in the source books, the supplemental material, because uh, looking at the list... Again, they've changed focus. They're mm. not going to do a Klingon book. They're not going to do, you know, it's, there are really two types. There's some adventures in a book, but uh, they're doing it command, operations, and science. Yes. And then the, each quadrant gets a, uh, a source book. So you can deal with the alien species and cultures and planets in each of these quadrants in those books. But then it's a very different take on on the, the Splat book. So if you're doing operations, and that includes, uh, I guess it includes engineering and security, then it's got like these extra rules for these sorts of missions, different equipment for those sorts of missions. And so it's going, I guess, class by class, I, uh, in a way. I mean, they're... yeah. What would command people have to deal with? And then you get some extras dealing with that. It's a, a completely different way of putting together these uh, these source books. I got the the first release was... Uh, I'll just go through the ones I've got. These are the Voyages, Volume 1. and So those are adventures, Those right? are adventures. And they're perfectly good. One thing I didn't like was the fact that two of them involve time travel. I, I love time travel. I adore it. But I just thought that's pretty top-loading for time travel in your first ever supplement and i was a bit wary however i then got the gm shield which is really lovely i mean it's a i mean it's, it's huge i mean unless you're a very tall person or have a very low table players aren't are literally not going to be able to see you but it's well laid out very high marks on that the operations source book is really really good one of the best star trek supplements i've ever read i really really love this book because it comes up with details that are at once logical but also ones you wouldn't necessarily have thought of if you're playing security or what have you it really fleshes them out and allows all different options gives you a few more life path things and what have you because at first i was a little bit dubious as to why they were doing it this way why aren't you just doing a starfleet source book if they're going to give this much detail and attention i think the players are really going to appreciate it it's great for npcs as well and i haven't been able to get hold of the beta quadrant source yet or the alpha quadrant one but i've i've seen some of the layouts and they look really good bit of a strange i get why they're doing it because every star trek game has to be different for some reason but that's an odd choice for the simple reason that okay you're doing the beta quadrant so that involves klingons and romulans and some of the federation which means you're going to get federation materials split over two, two source books most of the time, I think it's fair to say that most Star Trek role players and Star Trek fans full stop would want a dedicated Klingon source book and probably a dedicated Romulan one. And instead, they're all mashed together. And that's with all the other quote unquote minor races in the Beta Quadrant. The Delta Quadrant one is going to be super fleshed out as well because it's all of Voyager's stuff, which it means that's going to be the Borg source book and every other species spent over seven years, which means that's an awful lot of species to dump into one source book. And the Alpha Quadrant one is going to be insane because that's the Federation. So I get their approach. Now, unless they're going to make them volumes like Alpha Quadrant Volume 1, Alpha Quadrant Volume 2 and what have you, in which case, fine. But if this is their plan just to do four source books like this, I don't see how that's going to work. But the operations is really good and I assume command and science and everything. If they carry on this quality, they're going to be some of the... They are already some of the best source books in Star Trek role-playing history, I think. Wow. Is this the best 
Star Trek game that we had on on the list? Overall, it, taking off my nostalgia goggles for FASA and the sort of comprehensive covering that Last Unicorn Games gave, I think this is the best system so far. It's got its flaws, but it doesn't have any huge flaws. It's got areas that need clarity and it needs, well, put it this way, a second edition of this where the rules are rewritten, not so the rules are different, but the rules are clearer would be very welcome. One thing I do like, actually, is because the disciplines in it aren't linked to any attribute, you can't min-max in this. You can't munchkin this game. You can specialise or generalise and still be effective. It's almost impossible to create, like, a bad character in this. Every single character you roll will have value to the game, which I think is really well done. And there's nice balance between beginning characters like Ensigns and veteran characters because like there's mechanics that take it into account if you're playing an ensign there's an ability you can have where you can re-roll a failure so you aren't constantly screwing up because your skills are low veterans have a talent that allows them to create advantageous situations more easily so there's a lot of balance in this one big flaw with the core book and this will kind of be addressed this book does not cover all the air as well there's a huge imbalance there's no enterprise era ships in the main book at all and there's a heavy emphasis on tng which is fine because I would imagine the bulk of fans are going to be looking at that. This is one of the things about operations that was great. It takes into account all of the eras uh, from Enterprise to uh, Voyager, and you can, it covers everything, and it covers it really well. But going back onto the, the Quadrant source books, well, they've got to have all the species and all the history, and that is a I think that's a bridge too far for any one source book. There's so much canon lore for Star Trek, so that's always going to be a bit of a problem. I just feel like it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Alternatively, it may not be a problem at all because the people playing the game know the material so well that really these, uh, unless you need stats for something, it's not a big problem. My question is, did we really need another detailed history of the Star Trek universe in a role-playing supplement when there are plenty of these, you know, just as television source books, reference books, guidebooks, and uh, it's all in our heads anyway, and Memory Alpha, the wiki... I mean, it's all there if you want it today. So it just seems like you're explaining things to an already converted audience at that point. Maybe it's not so much the case now because you'd have like, I don't know, a 16-year-old role player buying this game because he's interested in Discovery, uh, has watched Discovery or he's watched the Star Trek films. And then he has to discover all of this stuff that is uh, available, but uh, it's a lot of television hours, you know, personally. I don't need another supplement to tell me things I already know, which is why I probably, if this is the the best game system to reproduce the show, I would still break out my Last Unicorn supplements for flavor. Let's go to Endoria and let's use this Endorian source book. You know, it doesn't matter what this game tells me. All of this stuff is useful. You know, I just have to file off the numbers as far as the stats go, and that's it. Oh, no, and I can, I 100% agree with you on that. I think it would just be handy to have, just as a guideline for, for creating your own stuff, you put in the Enterprise, the NX Enterprise, so that you've got the basic framework of, okay, so these ships in this era are this powerful and can do this, and these guys can do this. Yeah, you don't need all of the fluff. I completely agree. Uh, I think, if anything, they should avoid it, or if nothing else, put hyperlinks in so you can go and find it yourself. But I just think in terms of, Okay, I want to run an Enterprise era campaign. I've got the ships from this era, but I want to, I know they can't, they don't have shields and I don't have photon torpedoes, but I, I need to know just a little bit of a guideline as to how, if I wanted to create the NX, what kind of a framework, if I want to create ships in this era, what are the basic capabilities so that you've got like a siding scale? And also, I just think it's incumbent on any Star Trek role playing game now, especially to cover 
a little bit of everything because there are fans of all things in Star Trek. So again, when they eventually do get the rights to Discovery, they'll do a Discovery source book and they'll have all the ships of the line there. It was just, it just stood out to me. They're trying to cover an awful lot of information in a way that doesn't really accommodate covering an awful lot of information elegantly. Now, again, maybe they'll do an Enterprise era book. I don't know. If I was going to be stranded on a role-playing desert island with one Star Trek system, this is the one I would take with me. There you go. It's, this isn't a, an advertisement, but yeah, it's, it's on the market now, so people can find it. And I would say it also that you want to supplement some of that stuff just for reading material. If you're just a Star Trek fan, uh, and you may be if you're listening to this podcast, I think the last unicorn, a lot of the last unicorn boxes and books will have some of some stuff that you could read that's that goes beyond what the shows and even the novels have told us about some of these things. So it would be of interest just as reading material. Yeah, I think actually. If we, if we were going to mix and match, I'd have the Star Trek Adventures system. I'd have the last Unicorn Games support. And in term, if, and if I had a, a real penchant for, for TOS stuff, I would take the scenarios from FASA. That would be mm. the, the, the continuum that I would inhabit. Sorry, Decipher. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. And Prime Directive. I wanted to end this on just campaigns you've always wanted to run or play in. I, I know you you do both. In my case, I'm mostly a game master, most just because you know people don't want to game master me, and uh, <laughs> they don't trust themselves to, and I don't trust them to either, I guess. But uh, <laughs> campaigns you've always wanted to run in a, a Star Trek context. So like one and a half. I wanted to run, and this is just for giggles, not really for a campaign campaign, but just to see how it works. Uh, the Bureau of Temporal Affairs, going back to my love of time travel, just to sort of like visit the different eras of Star Trek with one crew, just to see how it pans out. But what I really wanted to run, and this would be a, a logistical thing as well, I had this idea for a campaign where you've got the Tal Shiar, you've got one group of players who are playing the Tal Shiar, and one group of players who are playing either Starfleet Intelligence or, if they're more devious, Section 31, and just have one like uber campaign where this is when it's set, this is what's going on in the galaxy. And then you would run one adventure with these guys and then it would be mirrored with the Starfleet guys. And they'd be playing like a, a kind of role-playing four-dimensional chess game with each other. And so what would happen in one adventure would affect the others until potentially, effectively, and this is where the logistics really comes in, you would have the surviving players around the table in one room for like the, the series finale where all of their plans and machinations come to fruition and they're all sitting around the same table and you see who wins and like which agency is extant which empire as you like wins the galaxy as it were and you just see how it resolves and yeah and you bring it all to a big crashing crescendo of well i say crashing crescendo it might end up with like a dagger in someone's ribs in some back alley somewhere on orion but you know and you have it all resolved where everyone meets each other face to face for the first and last time that sounds amazing, if you could make it work. Yeah, if. Big if. <laughs> yeah, with the two groups. Uh, I love that. I, uh, the, the, I've i also had that thought. Not not that thought, but, uh, you know, doing like the espionage kind of campaign. Because, like I said at the top of the show, it's always like I'm trying to find a way to, to, to make it less Star Trek, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, to not do it with the bridge crew and to have like a more a smaller party of equals. Uh, and so most of my thoughts on this would have been... You know, like a like a prime team. Uh, you know, on a runabout and doing missions. I even went so far. I, you know, I almost got a game started where I don't know why it didn't happen. I probably would have used GURPS in that case because at that time I was fiddling around with GURPS a lot. The idea was to have the warp fields. You know, the universe physics 
collapse for some reason. Ships of a certain size no longer sustain a war bubble. Mm. And it would have forced every power in the galaxy to keep on trucking, but with something no bigger than the runabout, crews of five, those ships would have had the same capabilities, more or less. It would have been uh, going around the galaxy, doing the stuff they would do, get into battles with one another, uh, all of that. But it also would have turned the the universe into some kind of, you know, much more isolated the colonies and uh, and let them yeah. grow, you know, in a different way. So uh, you're cut off from provisions and medical care. So these little ships would have been on more urgent missions, maybe. So I don't know. And I also wanted to do it where possibly I would just have filed the numbers way off and use the – I always wanted to use the uh, GURPS Aliens book, hmm. which has – uh, you know, it's just a catalog of alien species that you can use, and they're very well described. And, and there are a lot of analogs to Star Trek in there. There's like a Klingon type and a Romulan type, but even a Vulcan type. But there's so there, there's always a twist, which would have made it a more of a. It feels like Star Trek. It kind of is Star Trek, but it's always a surprise because there, no, no, the players don't come in with preconceived notions about Klingons and Romulans and whatnot because those things don't exist. They're, they do exist. They're recognizable, but then eat up slightly different or just enough different that it becomes about seeing the wonders of the galaxy and real first contacts. The knowledge you have of the show precludes that in a normal game. The players know more, you know, than, than their characters do, maybe. Uh, those were sort of the things I was I was playing around with. Nice. I always thought of a time travel game as well. I would have used the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, the Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm sorry, <laughs> the, the Guardian uh, of Time as uh, you know the magic donut. Yeah. As the the element that lets you go into time and then use the uh, mirror universe faction opponents. They're they're going into history to sort of reaffirm their version of history, and you're going in and trying to undo the changes that they're wreaking on what they feel is their universe it's like which timeline will become right now they're at 50 percent each but which one will will become a certainty yeah that kind of well a bit of a temporal cold war spin but better yeah probably when i thought of that was during the enterprise years so the mm. the temporal cold war was in my mind when i thought it up uh, even though I was, uh, you know, I, I disagreed with Enterprise going that route and mm. doing time travel stories. So those are some ideas, and I'm sure people at home have their own now that they've got some leads as to which game they should go out and buy or find online and buy. <laughs> I hope this was helpful and not just gobbledygook for, for people. <laughs> I was literally about to ask you that. Was I just talking gobbledygook? You know, it's uh, for people who play role-playing games. I, I think that was this was understandable. Uh, for those that don't, I hope it was interesting. I mean, we're touching on all topics on this show, so you know what? Even the normal show is probably gobbledygook to a normal person. Ryan Blake, how about you pimp your projects and uh, tell us where people can uh, hear more from you on the internet? Well, I'm on Twitter at Ryan Blake two three five. And I have two plugs. One is an improv comedy science fiction fantasy interview show called In Our Multiverse, which will be coming out in the new year. Also starring uh, Admiral Siskoid here. And again in the new year, a Doctor Who role-playing game podcast, very niche, called Wibbly Wobbly Dicey YC. Again, For more gobbledygook. Much more gobbledygook, yeah, of a different stripe. Uh, and because I still have the incriminating photos, it will also be starring Admiral Siskoid here. <laughs> Well, and there's a backlog. Uh, your old show was called Crap Tonight, and that, you know all those episodes are still 
available. Those are still out there, yes. If uh, any of our two listeners ever want to listen to them again. Ryan, it's uh, back to the long-range transporter for you. <sighs> Just uh, please, I don't want to go the way of Zon in Star Trek The Motion Picture, so please be careful. You know, I'm going to roll the dice and uh, hope for the best. I, I'll stick around. You know, I'm not going into that thing, death trap. I'll stick around for Subspace Ranch Missions. Uh, that's Star Trek news and your feedback from our previous episode. Thanks again for spending this time with me, Ryan. Thank you very much. Bye. That was my transporter. So. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I gathered. That's good. <laughs> it sounds like a triple. Maybe it's all the same. Maybe it's the same thing, just stretched. Maybe that's yeah. the triples are the ones doing the transporting all this time and they're just. They're inside the machine. You're inside yeah. the machine, yeah. Greetings, listeners. I am Dr. G, the man of nerdology. I host the Pulp to Pixel podcasts. I and my rogues gallery of co-hosts explore the media multiverse of geek culture with such shows as Welcome to Astro City and Secret Sagas of the Multiverse. Now I am proud to announce the newest addition to the Pulp to Pixel podcasts, Dial G for Gamer, a superhero gaming podcast. Dial G for Gamer will be a semi-monthly show where I and my co-hosts play and review games with a superhero theme. From tabletop games to video games, we will take on the genre one superhero game at a time. So if you love superheroes and gaming as much as we do, then tune in to Dial G for Gamer. You can find episodes of Dial G for Gamer with the other Pulp to Pixel podcasts through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. You can follow us on Facebook at the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Pulp to Pixel, where I go under the name Dr. G Neurologist. And you can find episodes directly at our blog, pulptopixel.blogspot.com. Incoming subspace transmissions. Uh, first, my thanks again to Ryan, and if you'd like to see what those role-playing games look like, I've assembled a small picture gallery at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Just under this podcast's uh, announcement, check it out. In Star Trek news, if you felt locked out of Star Trek Discovery because you didn't want to subscribe to CBS All Access, the first season of the show is out on DVD and Blu-ray, and is also available on iTunes, so have at it. CBS All Access's Nicholas Meyer-written Khan project is apparently up in the air right now, but Meyer did reveal some things about it recently. It's a trilogy of TV movies he's written called SETI Alpha 5, which tells Khan's story between Space Seed and The Wrath of Khan. While CBS is interested in miniseries, this may prove too costly to make as a three-night event, uh, but no news as to whether it will be stretched out or made at all. Michelle Yeoh is reportedly in talks with CBS to star in a Section 31 show where she would reprise her role as Emperor Georgiou, spinning out of her Season 2 appearances. That sort of gives you an idea of where she's heading. And don't miss the third episode of Short Treks available on CBS All Access or wherever you get your Trek content this Thursday, December 6th. It's more or less the secret origin of Saru. 
Now on to your comments about episode 27, uh, where myself and my guest Michael May talked about Trek's goofiest episodes. First up, Rob Kelly, who very much enjoyed this episode. He says, I think it's that varied tone the original series had that makes it so distinctive. In regards to Shatner Kirk's bigness, Leonard Nimoy has talked about this indirectly, saying that when he was playing against Jeff Hunter, he couldn't find an in since... Pike, as a character, was so quiet and brooding. Shatner, when he came in, uh, he was so theatrical, Nimoy was able to modulate his take on Spock to provide greater contrast. And in reference to an earlier episode, uh, Rob says, I think it was that tension that helped make the show work. If Hunter had not been replaced, I don't think Trek would have lasted three seasons. Might have been one of those shows that did 13 nice episodes and then disappeared. Chris Franklin says, uh, I don't think he went for a certain character for Kirk. Uh, speaking of Shatner, an exaggerated ideal version of himself. He was bigger, bolder than Shatner really was. Sometimes he may have laid it on a bit too thick and there's no doubt that he always commanded the screen. An older style of theatrical acting is apparent here while Nimoy was more into the then newish school of the method. The dynamic intermingling of those approaches is probably a huge part of Toss's appeal Add in DeForest Kelly to modulate, and you have TV magic. Gothos Mansion says Spock's brain is one of my favorites, and no offense, you guys didn't even hit some of the high points. The line we constantly quote at work is, brain, what is brain? Which I almost put in as a clip at some point, but uh, it didn't happen. Then there is McCoy under the hairdryer, excuse me, the teacher. The real highlight, after McCoy has hooked up, for lack of a better term, the part of Spock's brain that controls his speech, and Spock tells McCoy how to complete the surgery... All of it, just fun stuff. Really, you guys could have gotten an entire episode out of Spock's brain and probably The Way to Eden as well. Jack T says he found uh, the, the podcast for the first time today through Michael May's adventure blog. And Jack, this is exactly why we cross-pollinate like this. Uh, so he's, he enjoyed the episode tremendously. He says, I was at an age to see TOS first run, but was off doing my obligatory military service and didn't catch up until around 1970-ish. I was getting serious about my fiction writing at the time, and what it did for me was to show uh, that we could be the aliens in The Flying Saucers, and that that would make for a captivating story. It also stunted my output for about a decade as I struggled to separate my themes and plots from those of the show. David S. Gutierrez says, very interesting topic. For me, the bottom of the barrel was the goofy Ferengi-centered Mirror Universe episode of DS9. And Tim Price says, those kinds of TOS episodes remind me of a lot of Silver Age comics with their no-holds-barred creativity brought to life in the medium of television. Some of them are fun to laugh at, but many times they give a warm, friendly feeling inside, when we didn't take stories too seriously and just went along for the ride. Linda Dietz says, I'd never thought of the difference between silly and goofy and campy until listening to this. Even at its worst, TOS is still so much better than much of what is available even now, simply because it was such a groundbreaker. The type of thing that we go back to. And David W. says, the visual design, acting, and action were all superior to TNG, DS9, etc. TOS actually hired well-known science fiction authors. So even the Lincoln, the Roman, the Nazi, the hippie, the Native American, cowboy gangsters, Greek gods, etc. stories all have some merit. I think. Well, on that, as usual, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter with the hashtag FWPodcasts. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. <laughs>